0: For humility as we think about these things, remembering you are God, and uh, thinking about how big you are. Um, We pray that that stays in our mind and that your Holy Spirit works in our hearts as we go over these things. We ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Uh, One more commercial. Um, Today, I've talked to many of you already, but just in case... Uh, Today, uh, we are having all the teenagers over, or those that are close enough. Um, For uh, lunch, uh, so afterwards, after, uh, what do you call it, uh, church, uh, come to us, we will, we have enough vehicles. Um, This is another part of God's sovereignty, all our vehicles work at the same time today. And they're all here, ready to caravan you to our house. And some of the best massacoli ever made by a human being will be, will be there. If you don't know what massacoli is, uh, it's Italian cheese, tomato, pasta, but it's homemade sauce. It's not like we got some prego, there's nothing wrong with prego, but you know, just dump a jar. It's literally made from the tomato up. It's amazing. It really is amazing. Uh, and if, if you miss it, I just, I just really fear for your, for the rest the of your life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I just don't know if you can really live a fulfilled life without having this. So, um, but, you're only a but only the teenagers. The rest of you really will just have to go on with your life. And I apologize for that. But your teenager will we'll surely enjoy it. <laughs> what was that? It sounds like you're making me of. And there's nothing wrong with that. No, 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 no. And this means if you're close enough before or after... Kyle, how old are you? 21. Yeah, it's close enough. So, if you're hungry... uh, We already had one cancellation, so there's room. There's room at the table for you. Okay, I'm sure there's a song somewhere in my past. (laughs) (laughs) It's <laughs> All right, good, so uh, please come. We already have a lot of people coming, and uh, we'd like to have you there. There's lots to do. We have Paris Mountain State Park right there. I mean literally, across the street. So. Uh, it'll be fun. If you're a napper, if you're a napper, any napper, teenage nappers, we have, we have beds. Uh, nothing wrong with napping on, on the Lord's day. It's rest. What else could it be? All right. And after all that mass of trolley, there's barely anything you can do after that. Okay. That's my commercial. For those of you that are still pondering in your mind. Well, today we're talking about God's sovereignty. And before we uh, really dig deep into the Word and find out what God's Word actually says about it, I have a question, and it's a real question. Um, My my students where I teach at Bob Jones, um, they don't understand this yet. But as we get into the semester, they realize any question I ask really is a trap. It's a trap. And so whenever I ask a question towards the end of the semester, you can see their little minds moving. They're like, oh, how is this going to go against me and make me look stupid if I answer it? But this question I'm about to ask is not a trap. Honest. Um, so, here's my question. If, if you could shape out how it would be that America would stop murdering babies, how would you go about it? How would you kind of figure that way out? What, how, uh, what do you think? Like if you were given the power, like, hey, uh, figure this out. President Trump called you up and said, Hey, I want you to figure out a plan. Send me the plan and I'll make it happen. What would you do? Immediately shut down all Okay, how would you shut them down? What would you do? (laughs) (laughs) Would you just have government cut funding completely so they'd be reliant totally on Hollywood? (laughs) Which still wouldn't be enough, right? So you would say we need legislation that would shut down any kind of governmental uh, money. Okay. Yes? You have to start by defining terms that you're going to use to write laws. Interesting. Okay, what do you mean by that? Uh, Well, what is life? When does life begin? Okay. Because this connects into the idea of murder.
1: Yes.
0: So we have to go... Back to the Ten Commandments for dealing with murder, so that we have to define our terms specifically in order to write the law that abides by that. Okay, so legislation that would then be the foundation by which all other legislation would determine what life is. Interesting, all right. I would start with an overall. Everybody in the country actually came to true saving knowledge of Christ, and then it would just organically happen because we would have murder, and so and it would just be self-sustaining because we would teach our children, and they would teach their children, so all right I would just change everyone's hearts and make them all Christians. Okay. <laughs> but even then, you have to go all the way back to. life at conception anymore. Even Christians don't, which is why you have Christians using Plan B for birth control, so you have to go all the way back to before okay. that and define what we say morality is, when do we say life starts, and what do we say is the murder of an unborn child? Okay. Because even if you shut down Plan B's you still have millions of Plan B's being dished out at college campuses. Yes. stores, Walmart, like... Right. So there's, a, there's something that goes down to the pit of people's hearts that has to change, and how do we do that? What's our ways of doing that? Um, kind of will probably single you out as to what your millennial view is. <laughs> but my point is, when we come to ways, things get complicated, right? Things get complicated. Um, if you could turn to Romans eleven. I'm not even at Romans 11. I should have... Here we go. Romans 11.33. This uh, starts on your paper there. We're going to fill out some of the blanks that we get from Romans 11.33. Paul, by the time we get to Romans 11.33... Has uh, gone quite deeply into the depths of the way God or not the way uh, the fact that God does certain things Um, this is past Romans 9 where well let me start at the beginning Romans 1 where we see that all human beings begin with a, uh, a hatred for truth um, they hate it so much that they try to redefine it and say, "No, we like this truth, which is different than actual truth and we move uh, on and on through the through the book where we talk about how the the nation of Israel has rejected God, and that even God at the very beginning never just never uh, chose a nation per se, because of their circumcision, he was choosing his church. And not everyone who is Israel is Israel, according to Paul. And he keeps going into this, the depth, the depth, the depth of this thing. And finally he says in Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, And say, how unsearchable are his judgments. That's your first blank there. How unsearchable are his judgments. And unfathomable his ways is the next one. Unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of God, of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Okay, now this verse is the verse we're starting with to talk about sovereignty. We're going to talk about it because oftentimes Scripture talks about that God is sovereign and that He makes certain judgments. But what does Paul say? Even these judgments are unsearchable. And the way everything comes together for his sovereign will is unfathomable. Um, I think that King James doesn't say past finding out. We want to find out, but it's past that. For who has known God's mind? This is a Jewish way of talking, Paul being from a Jewish culture. Uh, the Jewish culture often would ask questions that are so obvious it was a way of making a statement. Does that make sense? Um, you would see this often in the Old Testament. Uh, the Hebrew language uh, often makes many statements through questions. Have you ever seen Fiddler on the Roof, anybody? <laughs> my wife laughs at me because my, my measure of how much she loves me is whether she watches Fiddler on the Roof with me. <laughs> and being of someone who can trace back his lineage to the actual nation I feel that there's a little bit of a connection there with Fiddler on the Roof <laughs> and, he, and he makes a lot of statements through questions because is the culture um, and like when, when his daughter wanted to marry a Gentile The way he responded to that was, if a fish and a bird love each other, where will they make their home? (laughs) He's not wondering where they're going to make their home. He's making a statement. There is no home for them to make. Okay, so I don't know if that was a good example or not, but I liked it. So... So the question is, who has known the mind of God? Obviously, this is a statement that no one knows the mind of God, and no one is God's counselor. No one is counseling God on how he should conduct his ways in his sovereign acts. But isn't that the moment that everyone's upset about, right? Um... We make statements about God's sovereignty. Scripture makes very, very clear statements about God's sovereignty. And everyone's okay with it to an extent until it comes to the ways. And when we get to the ways, we want to find them out. Right? We want to say, well, the ways can't be this or it can't be that, so it needs to be this. And then we just really end up saying, well, God's not really sovereign because if he was sovereign, he wouldn't be a very moral God. Because if he was a moral God, he wouldn't have done this, or he wouldn't have done it this way. Right? And that's where we get into all our arguments. And then we become the counselors of God. Right? Uh, anyways, what I've noticed in my philosophy classes with my uh, secular students, when we come across this, And I read to them these things from Scripture. They get very upset because they come into contact with a God they have deemed immoral, right? And so they become God's counselor. Here's a few people on your list on your uh, handout there who have become God's counselors. Um, I start with Jacob or Jacob Arminius. Um, and maybe you've heard of Arminianism. Has anyone? You all heard of Arminianism? All right. The idea that God maintains the free will of human beings and kind of dances His sovereignty around that. Now, um, the reason why I have an arrow there pointing to Lewis Day something is because Arminius isn't really the original uh, person of Arminianism. The original uh, guy that we get Arminianism from is a, is a uh, Jesuit priest uh, named Luis de Molina. This was the guy that gave Arminius his ideas. Molina. It's just how it sounds, too. M-O-L-I-N-A. Molina. And this was um, Arminius wanted God's decrees to be true, so that when God decreed something from all eternity, it would come to pass. This is what Arminius wanted. But he also wanted humans to have this thing called free will. And so this was the idea that he got from Louis de Molina, the Catholic priest. The idea is this, that God was so obsessed with human free will That he imagined every possible world that could ever exist. And so, God placed in his mind, which is, to Melina, a very big deal, because once it's placed in God's mind, it's almost real. Because God has every detail in his mind, because he has super mind, right? He doesn't have just our mind, he has super mind. And super mind creates all these different worlds, where everyone freely chooses... Uh, What they want In each of these different worlds And each world varies Just by just a little bit So there might be a world that everything Happened the exact same way But in this different world That's just a little different than ours uh, Zeke decided to wear Red shoes Instead of blue Which would turn everything Just a little differently You understand what I'm saying? That's how detailed it is and what God did was he picked the world where everyone freely chose the things he wanted them to choose to, to meet his decrees. And then he actualized or made that world become real. This is Arminianism. Uh, anchored in Catholicism. Does that make sense? Now why did he need to create that spectacle of an idea, do you think? I mean, it's, you're not going to find it in the Bible. This is a philosophical idea. Why did he need that? So that the Marvel movies would make sense. Yes! <laughs> now that's <laughs> insight. Marvel movies would make he knew that one day someone would take an idea and say, How can we destroy this? I know, make Marvel movies. <laughs> because, man, no offense if you like those movies. It's the same What was that? It's the sin nature of man. Okay. What is it about the sin nature of man that he was concerned about? Want to justify his own actions. Okay. Or justify who else's actions, do you think? To bring God lower so that man can predestine his own destiny in sovereignty over God. Okay. Here's a question that doesn't. If this was the case, why didn't God just choose the world where man didn't sin at all? Doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I mean, he could have he could have actualized a world where everyone freely chose not to sin. I mean, maybe, or is it possible that every possible world that God created in His mind it kept leading to sin? I don't know. That's a great question. Yeah, and maybe and maybe Arminius could have some kind of way where his glory would be actualized in a way in a different way that he wanted and sin would needed to be there, but if sin needed to be there, then we come now God is a servant to sin. We got to have a lot of questions, don't we? Now, wouldn't he obtain more glory if there was no sin in the reality that he chose? Well, Arminius wasn't a dumb guy. He at least understood that we have no idea what would bring God the most amount of glory. And so he uh, listened to his Calvinistic teachers at least enough to know we can't know that much of God's mind. Just just enough to know he must have created a bunch of worlds in his mind and actualized one. (laughs) That's a very good question, though. So what we find is that this is also what this is a version of and maybe some of you have heard this growing up I know I did often pastors saying god looked down the quarters of time to see who would choose him saw that you would choose him and so then he predestined you retroactively they don't say retroactively but uh, they should And so retroactively, God predestined. That looking down the corridors of time is a phrase that stems back to Arminius, back to Catholicism, back to the very thing that the guy saying that would be horrified if he knew he was spreading Catholic thought in his church, which he was. Okay. So, Louis de Molina is a person that influenced Arminius and still influences churches today because what they want is God's ways to be justified. How do we justify God? We, even though his ways are unfathomable, we try to make them something that are fathomable. And here's the way we're going to make them fathomable. We're going to make them understandable by creating this bizarre idea um, that really stem, stems from a Catholic idea. And so, uh, like Nathan said, we make God a Superman. Right? God isn't really the Almighty Being. He's really just a Superman mind. So a mind that's kind of like ours, this is how I would do it if I were God. If I had God's superman powers, I would create all these different worlds and choose the one where everyone is free to choose in the way that would bring him the most glory. And then actually, that's how I would do it. And that's understandable uh, because that's how a superman would do it. We just don't have the superman mind. Because this is how we're still, and this is something I've tried to pound into our brains last time, we still think of God as Superman and not as God. We think of God as someone that's kind of like us, but has really cool powers. We're not thinking of God as the almighty Yahweh, who is the I Am. Um, Another guy that has tried to be God's counselor is a guy named William James. Horrifyingly enough, there was a professor once at a Christian school once who said, if you really want to understand a biblical understanding of of free will, study William James. Those words actually came out of a professor's mouth at a Christian fundamentalist school that would be unnamed, who is no longer around, which is good. Uh, Not that, well, anyway. They're not teaching. Okay, so sound morbid, but they're they're not teaching anyone, that's good. Uh, William James uh, is probably the furthest thing from Christianity you can imagine. Um, He believed that free will, whatever that was, was so important that God was obligated, there is obligated to human free will. And once we cross that line, we really have to ask what I always ask my students in the philosophy classes, when we say free will, what are we free from? What do you think? I mean, we're, free will, everyone knows what I'm talking about. What is the will free from? From sins, enslavement. Okay. Sins, enslavement. Maybe we believe there's a, there's a little bit of good in all of us? Coercion. From coercion. Interesting. As if. There is a part of us that, has, that is free from influence... And what you're talking about is autonomous free will. This idea that we can actually make a choice that has some kind of freedom from any kind of influence outside of our own soul. And that happens, people go to insane, like go to mental capacity. Yes. Yeah, I mean, when we disconnect from influence, we disconnect from reality, right? Uh, when I try to ask my students... I mean, when you get deep enough into philosophy, the idea that free will is real is becomes more and more insane. Um, because what we really do... We can't mean free will, right? Because once you're taught language, you're stuck. Uh, language limits all thought, right? Yet, yeah. so basically believe that in an example we are like children that God doesn't like how do I say this? You know how when a parent just lets a child choose whatever they want and it's never, never goes well? Mm-hmm. Because the child doesn't really know what they want? Yes. It's, it's the same thing? Yeah, exactly. Because like one other philosopher once said David Hume, another guy who did not like God He said, we're a slave to our desires. So he came up with this idea, well, why do we choose anything? We choose something because we desire it. And then I tell my students, you're all in this classroom. How did you get here? And they say, well, I didn't want to be here, right? They don't really (laughs) want to be in my class, especially at 8 o'clock in the morning. But there was something they desired more than being in my class, which was to graduate. And they know part of graduating is having to go to my class. So they go to my class because there's something bigger that they want. Right? And then you start looking at every choice you've ever made. It seems to be something about what I want. Even when I discipline myself, right? I get up at 5 in the morning to go running or to... Work out, or to go to work, or to start work early, is because there's something you want that that pain brings. So, why do they desire? Yeah. So then, that was the big question. Hume finally led him to full-on skepticism. Where does desires even come from? He didn't know. So nothing really means anything. Where does scripture say your desires come from? Your father. Your father. Either your father, the devil, or your heavenly father. Because the most fundamental relationship in the universe that has has never begun and will never end is what? Between Father. father and son. Father and Son is not a good example of what God is like. God is Father and Son at His core root. So what's His fingerprint going to look like when He makes something? It's going to look triune, isn't it? So I say all that to say now we're starting to talk about some kind of freedom from something? It's insane. So even if even if there were no God and we were all products of evolution, free will is a ridiculous idea. <coughs> Clark Pinnock, who said, wait, maybe we can make God a little moral, a little more moral the way we think of him. So we said, he said that, well, God is limited, limited to human free will. So in Clark Pinnock's idea, he came up with this thing called open theism. And in open theism, the only way to make God really moral, the way we need him to be moral, is if he just doesn't know what the future is. He might have some posts along the way where he's really sure this is going to happen. In the end, I know I'm going to win. But he's taking what Clark Pinnock calls in one of his books, a risk. Human beings are a risk. He loves us so much, he's willing to risk By placing in us, in our free will, uh, the hope that everything will work out the way God wants it to. And so now God's very knowledge is limited. Because if God even knows what you're going to do tomorrow, okay, and this is where it gets, where Christians are like, well, you know, I have free will, Um, and so God doesn't control everything. Uh, Because he can't control human free will. But I know he knows what's going to happen tomorrow. Well, how is it that you can be free and God knows what's going, exactly everything you're going to do tomorrow? How is that freedom? And what they found out, as you study philosophy, is that it's impossible. You can't have free will the way we want to think about it. And someone already knows what's going to happen the next day doesn't work that way. So you have to have God not know. Clark Pinnock actually understood logic enough to know, well, I have to make God not know so that we can keep that free will, whatever that is. Okay. So then the question is, so what is it? When we say God is sovereign, We mean he's making a decree that will come to pass. So what does his decree look like? So let's look at God's decree. If you can turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to refer to that a couple times. A few times. As we go down this list. Um, As you study throughout scripture, um, you start realizing that scripture says a lot of things about particular things. And so going through Scripture to find out what all of Scripture says about that one particular thing is called a certain kind of study. Does anyone know what that, what that kind of study is called? So when you look all through Scripture, what does all of Scripture say about this one thing? Systematic theology. Who said it? Ten points. Yes. Systematic theology. So when you hear that word, Someone says, oh, uh, let me get my systematic theology book out. You see books that have the word systematic theology. That's what it's doing. It's saying, what does all of Scripture say about this one thing? So if we say God is triune, what does all of Scripture say about Trinity? What does all of Scripture say about God's sovereignty? And that kind of thing, does that make sense? Um, We're not going to do that because we're a little low on time. But we're going to maybe see what (coughs) Ephesians says about it. We slip into the Old Testament a few times because I think that's helpful and necessary to do. But mostly it's going to be through Ephesians. So when God decrees something, when he makes a decree, um, God's decree is divine wisdom. Divine wisdom is the word there. The literal mind within the Trinity. Let me see. Hmm. Okay, I think I know what I was trying to say there that uh, did not come across well. So we're talking about God's wisdom. We're talking about the literal mind that God has within the Trinity. Okay, so we're already talking about something in a representative way, right? We use the word mind. Which is kind of like what we have. We have a mind, but that's a representation, right? That's an interpretation. Uh, what does the mind of God really mean? Ah, uh, can't even imagine, because we're talking about a being who is fully one, is absolutely one, without a question of a doubt, is absolutely one, and is personal in His oneness. And he's also three and is personal in each of those persons. And the mind of those persons are one and three. So I can't even imagine what that even means. And scripture speaks of it as wisdom of God's mind. Um, Ephesians 3, 10 and 11 says this. Um, So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and to the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose, which he carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So we have this purpose, this eternal decree that goes behind the mind of God, that is then revealed in a representative way to us, that we can understand it at least representatively. Um, God's decree is eternal. God speaks before his creation exists. Ephesians 1, 4. If you remember that, um, we'll start at 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before. So his decree is eternal. Remember what we talked about with eternal. Outside of creation, before he creates, it's an infinite choice of God there wasn't a time where God wasn't choosing us and then suddenly he decided "Eh, I think I will and then chooses us the choice is infinitely there and when it hits time into creation it becomes this eternal decree that is now entered into time because God created it and space and it is eternal it never began this choice that he made I want you to think of the permanency the permanence of this of this decree. It was this always choosing us in the depth of the mind of God. Does it sound like something where God is nervous about our free will whatever that might be? Does it sound like he's taking a risk? Does it sound like his deep concern is that we get to choose between one thing or another? Here's the philosophical problem. When we say, I had a choice to choose otherwise, when we make choices. Because if you really want to stick with that, if you really want to hold on to that tight enough that it becomes an idol that guides your reading of scripture, this is your philosophical problem. If Gus is looking at that cup that is almost completely gone, Gus has the choice to pick it up in the next three seconds, two seconds, one second, he didn't pick it up, okay? Could Gus have chosen otherwise to pick up that cup? You might say, yes, he could have. There's no way to prove it. Go back and scientifically prove that he had the choice to choose otherwise. You can't, because the moment's gone, because you can't go back in time to prove something that didn't happen. This is the philosophical problem of, I could have chosen otherwise. I'm not saying that we all live in this mechanical, mechanistic world of, you have no choice. What I'm saying is, if you want to stick to philosophy, to guide you for your idea of free will you're going to have a lot of problems. Do we have free choice under God? Do we have free choice to choose whatever sin we want under the slavery of sin? Well, that's a different story. But if you, want, if you want philosophy to guide you through Scripture, you're going to be broken every time. You're going to hold on to it, think you're doing great, and then someone's going to burst your bubble, and it's going to fill you with doubt. <laughs> Because you relied on something that cannot sustain you. I might be reading into every word you're saying, but I noticed you said "scientifically prove." Mm-hmm. Why is that? Why is science how we prove things? Um, that's our culture. Science actually can't prove things because it relies on inductive reasoning. So why did you say that? Um, because people are used to hearing that. Um, yeah, thank you for. But yeah, uh, people are used to hearing scientifically proven because that's what they want when I ask my students what would it take for you to believe in God they, they always look for some scientific thing which wouldn't prove God at all because it would be inductive it would show that most likely this could be that's the best science can ever do because it's based on a reasoning can't be one. if I can put it this way the conclusion cannot be guaranteed Good question. Okay. Uh, God's decree is, the next one is there, efficacious. I know that's a weird word, and I apologize. I couldn't think of a better one. Uh, efficacious. It means it actually does something. Maybe I should have said that. <laughs> this decree actually does something. It acts in the world. What God speaks comes to be without Frustration. Ephesians 1, 18 through 23. What God decrees comes about without frustration. Christ did not come to earth and then said, Oh, no one's going to follow me? Aw! And then leave frustrated. Do you understand what I'm saying? God never started out a plan. It didn't work, and so there was a plan B. If I can put it more clearly for you, the church is not plan B. The church began when God created Adam to keep track of the garden as he was supposed to. So God was never uh, frustrated to the point where he's like, ah, oh, these Jews just won't do what I want. See, we Gentiles, how about you? Let me take a risk on you. Um, no. God's purpose are not frustrated. Scripture never supports a frustrated God. His purposes are always brought to bear. He is efficacious in his decree. God's decree is unchangeable. What God speaks will never change. Psalm 3311. Or the book of Psalms. Just read through it. And you will see a God whose decrees are never changing. (coughs) And remember that uh, psalm I read for you where uh, his loving kindness endures forever. We went through that. As you read the book of Psalms, you see a God that is unchanging in his greatness. Uh, God's decree is unconditional. What God speaks is dependent upon the creator, not the creation. And this is probably the biggest part of the heresy of believing that God is waiting on man. That God is the prom queen God, up in heaven, begging people to love him because no one will love him. And he's just, he's filled with so much love, and if you just love him back. And you hear uh, a kind of preaching today that, that resembles this God who is who is weakly loving you, and if you just love him back, he'd be so happy. This effeminate God, they've already created an effeminate look for Christ, it's no wonder that we would then add to his word some kind of effeminate quality. I've been big on uh, images of Christ lately. We're creating that in my work, this... uh, Catechism one, uh, for grades one through three and we're, we're determining not to have any pictures of Christ throughout the whole thing. And uh, some people bucket that in the world that I live in. Uh, but uh, they lost. Okay, so... <laughs> Unconditional. God is not waiting on man. There's nothing that God depends upon in his creation for his will to come about. And lastly... God's decree is universal. Nothing stands outside of God's decree. There is nothing that God has decreed that is just for a little bit of what's going on. Everything else is up for grabs. God's decree does not, well, that's just for your salvation. Everything else is kind of, you know up for grabs out there. God's decree is universal over all his creation. Everything that comes about is because of his work. And this brings up the big question. Uh, The first question that people bring up is Romans 9. Paul anticipated this question. Romans 9 they say, how does God find fault with us if no one can resist his will. And Paul answered that in the best possible way he could have answered it. And I guarantee you, when you look at his answer, you will be disappointed. Because what we want is some kind of logical connection that will say, ah, yes, thank you. Now God thinks like us. What we want is a Superman God that will say, that's, Paul can say, well, God is really not God. He's really just like us, who thinks like us, and has a Superman brain. And you just have to translate your Superman brain to his brain. And that's not what happens. What he says is, who are you to speak back to God? God isn't Superman. God is the almighty triune being. Who are you to speak back to that which decided to make you. Now that might not sound uh, satisfying to you, but I guarantee you if Paul were to satisfy that curiosity you had, and it was true, you would not be serving God, you'd be serving a superman. You would not be serving something great, you'd be serving someone like you. With superpowers. So then, the second question people ask: Well, then, why is there evil in the world? And we're going to answer that next next week. But you got to come back <laughs> because I'm going to answer it. You're going to be like, "Oh, I get it now. I'm so glad I came." Okay. Well, let's have a word of prayer. We are out of time. Um, let's pray, dear Heavenly Father. We thank you uh, for who you are. We thank you that you are a great God that is so great, so mighty, and so holy that we cannot understand you to the full extent that we even wish to understand you. We thank you for your word that gives us clarity of representing what we can know about you, Lord, and we thank you for that. We thank you for your son, who through him we are able to have the mind of Christ. We pray for your continued help and strength as we think on your greatness. We pray that it will lead us To praise for you and worship as opposed to having selfish doubt. Lord, we ask these things in your son's name.